Will extreme weather change climate opinion or policy? This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. The hottest July on record is bringing big headlines, with scientists and activists hoping that Americans will notice the changing climate and call for policy action. But this is not the first time we've seen attempts to connect local weather or memorable disasters with calls for policy action. And the prior record does not suggest an easy path from climate impacts to mobilization for change. This week, I talked to Peter Howe of Utah State University about his work on climate policy opinion. He finds that the effects of temperature shocks and natural disasters on public opinion are limited and inconsistent. The effects tend to be on basic awareness and in response to local temperatures, and they're not as strong as initially suspected. Later, I talked to Sam Rowan of Concordia University about his environmental politics paper, Extreme Weather and Climate Policy. He finds that temperature shocks and natural disasters do not seem to generate climate policy reforms at any level of government worldwide. Climate policy is slowly moving forward, but not in response to local extreme weather. They both say expecting climate policy to advance as citizens experience more of the direct impacts of climate change may be a false hope. I first talked to Peter Howe about the effects on public opinion. Well, first, this is a question that social scientists have been increasingly interested in, um, I think in part because uh, we have seen that there has been, in some cases, an assumption among the policy community um, and sometimes among the physical science community that um, there will be some kind of feedback between climate change and policy as the impacts of climate change become more extreme and people start to experience more extreme impacts, then they will obviously change their opinions about climate change and that will prompt policy change and hopefully lead to um, more climate mitigation. Um, so there's been an interest in setting this question of, well, is that true? Do um, increasing experiences um, of extreme weather associate, that are associated with climate change, do they actually change people's opinions? Um, and then does that also lead to changes in behavior and ultimately changes in, in policy? Um, so this is uh, this was a meta-analysis uh, or a, re a review article um, that that looked at that question, looked at um, studies that were published recently on how people are perceiving climate change and how those um, their their experiences with extreme weather um, associated with climate might be changing our opinions. Um, and well, so we it is true that um, more and more of the global po global population is experiencing more frequent and severe extreme weather events. We are all experiencing climate change um, in our local areas. Um, we still don't have a lot of consistent evidence that those experiences are, are consistently leading to changes in opinion about climate change that are, are durable or have an impact on policy. So there's been just a, a variety of contradictory um, findings from different studies that have different methodologies. Um, so we still, we can't draw a lot of strong conclusions about whether um, whether we can assume that there will be that kind of a feedback between the impacts of climate change and people's perceptions and impacts on policy. So there's um, two ways that you uh, look at this or ways that studies have looked at it. One is uh, to just look at kind of actual sort of temperature changes and temperature anomalies. And another uh, is to look at kind of extreme weather events, things like hurricanes um, that people might attribute uh, to uh, climate change. So what uh, what's kind of the state of each of those um, research areas? What What is kind of known and unknown about those potential effects? Yeah. And I would say that those those questions are kind of, are are interlinked, um, you know, just I think necessarily because climate and weather are part of the same system. Um, so you know we can experience um, individual extreme events, but those are all driven by broad scale changes in the atmospheric system um, that we call climate change. Um, so in, in terms of the evidence, we do see that um, in broad scales, people are reporting that they are they are, are feeling that the that weather in their local areas is getting warmer. Um, we've seen several studies, including one that I published back as part of my dissertation now in, in 2012, 2013, um, 
where we we surveyed people in 89 countries and found that um, the majority were reporting that temperatures were getting warmer in their local area. Um, so we, we do see these the individual perceptions of changes reflecting what's what we're measuring in terms of changes um, from a, a climate and weather uh, atmospheric science perspective. Um, and uh, we also see that people are self-reporting more direct experiences of extreme events associated with climate change. Um, the, the complications come in the relationship between those experiences and impacts on opinions about climate change and support for policy. So um, one of the big complications is a lot of studies have, um, have looked at self-reported experience uh, with extreme weather events and how that is associated with um, opinions about climate change and support for climate policy and haven't necessarily uh, backed up those self-reported experiences um, with other sources of data about whether um, you know people who say they've experienced a hurricane were actually living in a place where a hurricane happened, for example. Um, so what we found um, that I was just going to add. So the problem there might be that uh, people who um, are aware of climate change or supporting uh, uh, action on it are just more aware and more conscious of these extreme weather events that are happening. Right. Yeah. Kind of a motivated reasoning effect where if you if you believe climate change is happening, you're concerned about it. You may be more likely to say that you're experiencing the impacts of climate change than someone who doesn't necessarily believe climate change is happening or a threat. So the the, the studies that actually look at uh, climate um, or weather or, or climactic events in your area don't show a strong evidence of a relationship. Is that right? Yeah, we, we see we see mixed results. Um, so in in um, sort of broad terms, the one of the um, one of the strongest effects that we do see um, other researchers have called the local warming effect where, you know, during periods where it is hotter than usual in a particular place, people are more likely to say that they're concerned about climate change. Um, but that's a very short duration effect. Um, and so we don't necess necessarily see that over the long term. Um, and then we have methodological challenges, like, like I mentioned, um, you know, people using self-reported experience um, rather than verifying that self-reported experience. Um, other things that, that researchers could do is, you know, we could, we could do panel studies um, and we're increasingly trying to do that where we, we recruit cohorts um, and track climate opinions over time. Um, and that, that would be one way of, of getting around some of these challenges um, associated with asking these questions at a single point in time. So the other uh, issue, as I saw it, is that the dependent variable kind of usually stops at awareness or something like that. Um, and what we really need for this theory that, um, that we're going to be able to react to climate change as it happens uh, to, to be true is that we're going to need a lot beyond just awareness. We're going to need people's attitudes to change about public policy, maybe their salience of that issue relative to, to other issues. So it, is it safe to say that sort of once we're asking for more than just awareness, it's going to be harder and harder to make those links? Yeah, yeah. So we we are still um, we're certainly in the early stages of understanding how um, extreme weather events and uh, changes in climate might be influencing behavior. Um, so a lot of this, the earlier work that I mentioned, is is just focusing on climate opinion um, rather than any sort of behavioral measures. Um, but one of the areas I think we can draw from, um, which I also work in, is in hazards and disaster research. Um, and in disaster research, we've known for a long time that disasters have a relatively short-term effect on, on behavior and protective behavior. For example, you know, people tend to purchase flood insurance after they've been affected by a flood, and then that, that intention kind of drops off pretty steadily um, after their, their experience. Um, so it, 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 one, of the, one of the challenges, I think, is... Um, partly in a communication challenge at, at um, making the link between the impacts of climate change and the increasing, uh, between climate change itself and the increasing impacts that people are experiencing. Um, but also we do need more studies of, of impacts on behavior. Um, 
and I've I've been part of of contradictory studies at, as well in this this arena. So one that I would I would uh, point out is um, I was part of a recent study on the effects of um, the public safety power shutoffs in California that were associated with the uh, extreme wildfires they had um, in 2019, and those affected a large area of uh, Northern California for, in some cases, multiple days, people were without power. Um, and so we compared people who had experienced those uh, power shutoffs to a matched sample of people who didn't experience those, those power shutoffs um, and found that, that having that experience um, of that uh, impact, which is linked to climate change, um, did affect certain behavioral intentions like um, it made people more likely to buy a, a generator, a gas power generator, um, and less likely to buy an EV. Um, but it didn't change climate opinions or climate policy prefer preferences, um, like things like willingness to pay for climate change mitigation or adaptation efforts like um, uh, expensive projects like burying power lines um, in California, which would re reduce the need for those, those power shutoffs. Um, it also didn't change uh, approval ratings of political leaders. Um, so incidentally, we also have kind of a potential backfire effect there where you know, it, it experience of an impact linked to climate change, increased intentions to buy gas generators, which are, are uh, contradictory to, to climate change mitigation. I was going to say that seems similar to an article that I saw you were a part of also that looked at changes in uh, public views across U.S. states, um, finding yeah. that the overall pattern was, you know, towards seeing increased perceived importance, um, but that it was concentrated in these liberal states. So you kind of had both a rise, but uh, an increase in polarization as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I think we... we we're seeing evidence of that at the individual level and at the state level. So it does seem like people who are, like I mentioned earlier, people who who are are already concerned about climate change are more likely to say that they've personally experienced um, an extreme weather event and that extreme weather event is um, maybe reinforcing their existing beliefs, but um, not necessarily changing the beliefs of someone who um, was uh, previously skeptical or dismissive about climate change. And so, yeah, at the state level, we are seeing um, some of that kind of increasing polarization um, in, in some of the questions that we ask in these in national surveys, uh, particularly more about climate policy than necessarily about um, the perceived risk of climate change. So this paper, um, we, we modeled changes in state level public opinion over time from 2008 to 2020 using um, nationally representative survey data. Um, and over that 13 year period, we, we saw that uh, perceived harm from climate change and the importance of the issue of climate change increased everywhere in pretty much every state. Um, but there was more of a divergence in um, changes in support for climate policy between more democratic leaning states, which tended to have increases in support for climate policy and then more Republican leaning stage states where um, uh, support for climate policies either stayed steady or, or decreased. So how, how should we characterize the kind of state of American public opinion um, on this uh, overall? Um, you know, how much do, do we stand out internationally? Um, and I guess, is it true that the public is really the roadblock here? It seems like, you know, in aggregate, most people are, are acknowledging of human-caused cl uh, climate change and in favor of policies to redress it. In general, public opinion in the U.S. about climate change is not dramatically different um, on average than it is in um, many other similar large developed countries um, like, say, Canada or Germany or the UK or Australia, um, we tend to have a broadly similar share of people who are, are concerned about climate change and support climate policies. Um, what, uh, my colleagues at the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication have created um, what they call the, the Climate Change Six Americas or Global Warming Six Americas scale, which groups um, the American public into six audience segments um, associated with their opinions about climate change. Um, and uh, one, one thing that we see from, from those studies is that um, 
we have a, a significant share of the the U.S. population who uh, they term the dismissives. These are people who are are kind of the the climate change deniers or the climate change skeptics. Uh, and that share of our population is um, noticeably larger, notably larger than it than it is in peer countries. So that is one area where we do differ. We have more people um, on the dismissive and um, when it comes to climate change. And that uh, I think has ripple effects when it comes to policy. Um, having more people on the dis dismissive end um, means that they're they are louder. They are also quite influential in um, in the Republican Party. And so they 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 may even um, over overstate or people may overestimate the the share that they are um, in in the American public because of their their prominence. Um, but by and large, um, when it comes to aggregates ac across um, the American population, we are similar in a lot of ways to other countries when it comes to the, the pr proportion of people who are concerned and support policies related to climate change. And so we have um, we have a, a, a larger and louder minority um, that is dismissive. But it doesn't seem like that um, category is very likely to be impacted by these uh, by these uh, extreme weather events. Is that fair to say that this that we're mostly yeah. dealing with the realm of people who are already on board to some extent? Yeah, yeah. We don't have a lot of evidence that that experiencing extreme weather events is going to cause people who are in that dismissive category to change their minds. Um, but among people who are already concerned about climate change, it could potentially reinforce that concern and, and maybe lead to more support for policy or more changes in individual behavior. So we're, um, you know, studying this in part because, you know, we're interested in actually addressing climate change um, and um, uh, understanding how to communicate about it um, and how uh, public opinion might might react to it. Um, I guess, what are the, the broad lessons from that uh, uh, literature? If we if we can't necessarily get people to make a big change when something's directly affecting them, um, you know, how much are these sort of more messaging interventions about what's happening likely to change opinion? Yeah, I mean, and that, that's a great question. Um, I think communication is important. Uh, I mean, it's always, um, it's good to, to try to tailor messages to one's audience, um, but we don't have really any evidence that there is a magic bullet, so to speak, when it comes to messaging um, that's going to cause people to change their minds. Um, so I, I do think though that um, there is some effective work around messaging that's going into informing um, messages that target political leaders and decision makers. Um, and that's where some of the activist community is really focused now. Um, so like one example I would call out um, is that um, we know that political leaders tend to underestimate the level of support for pro-climate policies. Um, among their constituents. And um, that's true with, with many other uh, policies as well, but, but certainly with climate. Um, and that's one of the goals um, of campaigns like um, uh, the uh, uh, Protect Our Winters um, nonprofit, which I'm part of, we, it, it is, is working to, to directly communicate with, um, with political leaders and help them understand better about what their constituents actually support. Um, it's also one of the, the main um, objectives of a group called Citizens Climate Lobby, um, which works to connect constituents directly with their political leaders and help educate them about, about what policies their constituents support. And it's also one of the outcomes of um, the Yale Climate Opinion Maps project, um, which I uh, was part of starting um, back in 2015 through the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, where we wanted to help um, political leaders better understand what their constituents actually think about uh, about climate change and what sorts of policies they support. So one of the reasons to cover this uh, now is because we've just had a very hot uh, July and some media coverage um, and some scientific communication um, kind of trying to tie that uh, to, to climate change. Um, what's your impression so far of kind of how that potential relationship is, is being communicated and how likely that that might be to change opinion? Yeah, um, I, I think the 
the media is certainly um, doing a much better job at putting extreme events like the, the heat we've experienced this summer into the broader climate context, but I think messages are still somewhat inconsistent um, and we have a ways to go about, uh, about uh, communicating the fact that the extreme heat that we're seeing here in the US is part of broader global trends that are, are consistent with, um, with global warming and climate change. Um, one of the, the great uh, examples that I, I would like to mention though is um, a project called Climate Matters, which is coordinated by the George Mason University Center for Climate Change Communication um, and Climate Central. And that is a, a project that is working with local TV weathercasters all over the country uh, to help them um, situate the climate, climate change story um, in their reporting about, um, about local weather. Um, so putting putting their their daily weather forecast into a broader climate context and helping their viewers understand how um, the extreme events like like our heat waves uh, are linked and part of a broader pattern. And that Climate Matters project is now working with weathercasters in I think over ninety percent of media markets across the country. Um, so it has really broad reach, and it's a really important. Um, uh, messenger that, who, who they're working with, local TV weathercasters, because that is often the closest um, a lot of members of the public get to climate science in their everyday life. It's people with a, a meteorology background who are doing the, the daily weathercast. So we have uh, obviously some uncertainty all the time in um, attributing uh, trends to climate change, and then that's heightened whenever we're trying to isolate effects on on specific events um, or you know a mo one month of of weather. So how do, how should we think about kind of the trade off there, uh, given that uh, both we might not be able to fully explain the, the the science, but then we also might you know face an issue if we have a cool July next year, uh, or, you know, a, a season that uh, doesn't seem as strong um, with, with extreme weather. Yeah, it's, th this is a, an area where um, my understanding of, you know, the, the um, accurate messaging has, has evolved um, over the years recently. So, um, you know, it used to be the, the most accurate statement was that we, we could not necessarily attribute any single extreme weather event to climate change. Um, and that was a, a, a safe bet. Um, however, that these are these are events that are consistent with what we would expect to see um, under a, a scenario of, of um, changing climate um, and global warming. Um, but but I think potentially a, a more accurate uh, current message is that every single weather event that we experience is affected by climate change. Climate change is so. Human-caused emissions are, have changed the, the global climate system to the extent that um, we, we can't disentangle those from any particular event. So we can't necessarily say that um, an event was caused or not caused by climate change. Everything is connected. Um, so yeah, it's, it is a challenge though. I, I completely acknowledge when it comes to, to communication about um, accurately representing the science. Um, I, we don't have enough evidence to say necessarily either way. And um, on, on the one hand, there is, we, we are likely to see a more, um, more variable climate with climate change too. So we, we may see more, more extreme cold snaps while on average, the climate is warming um, as, you know, there may be potential destabilizations in um, in the jet stream, for example, that, that might lead to, to more extreme cold weather during some, some times of year. Um, however, I, I think um, from the evidence that we do have uh, in social science, environmental social science, those effects are likely to be temporary if they do um, lead to uh, depressed concern about climate change, for example. Um, and unfortunately, we are we're continuing to see on, on average a warming climate. And so we are going to be seeing more and more on in aggregate um, events that are um, consistent with what people expect to see um, associated with climate change. So more heat waves, more coastal flooding, um, more, uh, more extreme hurricanes. 
So the other uh, interview for this uh, episode is with uh, Sam Rowan, and he um, studies the same inputs as you, the uh, extreme weathers and, and temperature um, shocks, but is interested in actual policy changes um, across governments associated with those changes um, and, and doesn't doesn't really find a very, very, very strong of a relationship, if any. Um, so I guess how would you fit your... Um, fit your findings in in with those on the one hand it, it is kind of a higher bar because if public opinion was the channel then it would have to be enough public opinion change to lead to political activity on the other hand it might allow some other routes to change like you talked about elected officials being directly or appointed officials being directly impacted um, and yet we still don't seem to find um, much there yeah i i would say those results are, are broadly consistent with what we found um when looking at the, the individual level um, with respect to public opinion. Um, we still have, um, like I mentioned um, earlier on, there's there's a lot of inconsistencies in, in findings on, on whether um, experience with these kinds of extreme weather events actually changes um, opinions about climate change. So I, I'm not surprised um, to, to see that we, we are seeing limited, if any, effects on on policy, um, because we have seen such such inconsistent effects um, in public opinion. However, um, one thing that I, I mentioned in my review article is that you know we're we're still in the early stages of the the changes in in weather that we're going to see associated with climate change. Even if we were to enact extreme mitigation policy at the global level now, the weather is going to continue changing for for some time. Um, so there. Are likely to be there. There are more extreme experiences in the pipeline, and um, I uh, would hesitate to conclude from um, research on experiences up to this point that um, future impacts will will not cause changes in uh, opinion or policy um, because they are likely to be more extreme. And how should we think about um, potential paths through which um, these changes in climate might actually lead to, to changes in, in policy? So we have this public opinion path, um, but you could think of a longer term uh, impact. Uh, something might uh, help produce activists, um, might change mm -hmm. the opinions of, of a whole cohort um, as they were uh, kind of starting uh, in, in politics. Um, so I guess what what are the paths by which we might see we might see some effects? They just might take kind of longer to develop. Uh, we don't necessarily see these aggregate changes in opinion, but I think certainly we do have the potential for uh, for these kinds of, of extreme events associated with climate change to um, to cause um, some some pretty severe individual level experiences, which can result in in um, social movements and and could produce activists. Um, and, and so that is certainly uh, a pathway through which, um, policy may, may change in the future. Um, and when it comes to cohort effects, um, yeah, we are seeing that, that, that younger people are, are more likely to say that they have directly experienced, uh, the impacts of climate change and, um, they're more likely to say that they, um, they uh, are concerned about climate change and, and more likely to support climate policy. So we may be starting to see some of some cohort effects appear, although I, I, I would, it's a little bit maybe too soon to tell uh, in that respect. So what's uh, on the agenda for you uh, now and what do you see as kind of the most important uh, ways that this uh, research is moving forward? We've come back to the issue of extreme heat several times and that's one of the areas that um, I've been focused on studying over the past few years is how the public is uh, experiencing, experiencing and responding to the risk of extreme heat. Um, and that's, that's an area that I'm, I'm continuing to be focused on. Um, and it's, it's it, heat in general is one of the, the less studied health hazards, despite the fact that is, it is the, the deadliest weather related hazard um, in the US it causes more deaths every year than and floods or tornadoes or hurricanes, um, but it's it's very difficult to communicate the risk of extreme heat, despite the fact that it, it is a risk to to everybody, um, and it's one that, as we've seen this year, um, is is 
uh, can be quite severe. And you know, a couple of weeks ago, um, over a third of the U.S. population was under an excessive heat warning issued by the National Weather Service. Um, but we still don't have a, a great understanding of how the public perceives the risk of heat and um, how people are behaving, what kinds of uh, responses people are taking. Um, even though we know that there are some pretty extreme um, inequities in uh, in responses and um, access to um, mitigation regarding heat, like access to air conditioning and inequities associated with urban heat islands in often poorer parts of cities. So that's an area that I'm I'm continuing to focus on, and um, we hope to understand better how the public is is experiencing this specific risk associated with climate change and how we can improve our responses to it. You know, we, we are thinking about uh, future weather anomalies and extreme uh, heat and disaster will, will get bigger. Other things could change over time as well. And one thing that unfortunately is happening in the U.S. is this polarization that we've been talking about uh, and a large um, conservative media apparatus uh, and um, uh, set of activists um, that is um, very, very ready to, um, uh, to kind of take on uh, scientific communication surrounding uh, climate change and especially relations to um, current events. Um, so, is there, you know, is there a chance that the the past may not be prologued for that reason as well? That um, in the future these will have to enter a polarized political debate um, that will impact how citizens receive this information. Yes, yeah, that that's uh, a risk that I've been worried about for a while, um, and. I think we we have started to see somewhat in in like on social media, for example, um, in responses to public health warnings about about heat. Um, we're it's it's starting to because it is is so directly associated with climate change. It is uh, the the most obvious direct impact of a warming climate is more heat waves. Um, we may be seeing more distrust of of public health authorities and, and the National Weather Service and weathercasters who are trying to, to alert the public about these risks. Um, and that's something that I think we need to, um, we and scientific communication scholars and the scientific community in general need to, to focus on understanding ways, ways to potentially improve communication or better understand how this, this kind of polarization might actually be um, leading to, to greater vulnerability to, to weather hazards. As Howe suggests, there is at least some reason to expect public opinion to move, but that does not necessarily mean policy will follow. I next talked to Sam Rowan about the relationship between extreme weather and climate policy. There, the findings may be even more bleak. You know, after every one of these natural disasters or extreme weather events, you know, you see in the uh, in the papers all these op-eds about these being wake-up calls. This is a bellwether for climate change in the state. Um, and like a lot of people, I was curious about whether there is some kind of an effect of these extreme weather events um, on on politics or on society. And when I was looking, I found in the literature existing studies about public opinion and about economic damages. So I thought the natural next step would be to think about, is there kind of an overall effect of extreme weather events on climate policy? So I set out to think about whether there is some kind of an effect um, of extreme weather events on climate policy that builds on this earlier literature about public opinion and economic damages. Um, and in the statistical analysis, I really found no effect, really no consistent effect of extreme weather events on any climate policy outcome. So I tried to study a range of different um, climate policy outcomes and a range of different measures of natural disasters and temperature shocks to think about you know, what is maybe the most generous specification for this relationship, but I couldn't really find any evidence such as one in the literature. So we might think of uh, kind of two um, processes which you, you looked at uh, here. One is like an extreme weather event, like a hurricane, and if there's more of them uh, or, or bigger impacts from them, then that uh, might cause policymakers to react. And then another is just, I guess, heat waves or just overall temperature changes. Um, and either one of those would be important to actually achieving um, a policy change for people to notice those things. Um, talk, talk about 
kind of the state of the the research as you see it on on those two potential mechanisms uh, and kind of how they might operate. In terms of like direct effects, right? So whether there's something about the weather that changes how legislators act, it's quite a difficult question to study actually because of the way that institutions are designed. It's hard to get um, measures of you know how politicians vote unconstrained from any kind of partisan influence or party politics or institutional rules. Um, so there could be an effect there that is direct, but I don't really know how we would, um, I haven't seen any studies that look at that very, very clearly. The indirect effect to me seems pretty plausible. Um, and we have these findings in literature that suggest it is, it is at least likely. Um, and this is because uh, extreme weather events change public opinion, at least kind of in the short term. Um, people are much more, uh, in survey answers, people are much more concerned about climate change if they've just experienced particularly hot days or heat waves or other kinds of natural disasters or extreme weather events. Um, and the findings there, I think, are, um, when I started the paper, actually, in 2020, I think the findings were pretty strong, right? I think, you know, the first um, papers on this had pretty large effects. Um, and then over time, as you see more people working on this question, you see a greater range of published findings. And now I think that maybe the overall effect is probably a bit weaker than um, we might have thought kind of even a few years ago. Um, we can talk a bit about like the publication, you know, sociology there and the way that certain findings come out um, and not others. Um, but then the other effect is kind of through economic damages, right? And there's a really large literature here that's very robust um, that shows that uh, the experience of extreme weather events and even things that seem kind of benign, like, you know, particularly hot years are really damaging for the economy. So uh, a really high quality study in science found that in the U.S., a year that's one degree warmer on average um, is associated with you know, 1.2 percentage points of GDP loss. Right. So that's a pretty huge effect when you think about a country the size of the U.S. That's, you know, billions and billions of dollars of economic damages. And there's lots of studies that find similar results on things like labor productivity or agricultural productivity. There's all kinds of different ways that um, extreme weather events create these kinds of economic damages. And so if you think about pairing this literature on public opinion with this literature on economic damages, you have these two kinds of pathways um, through which extreme weather events can be linked to demands for climate action, right? You might have you know, interest groups mobilizing around climate um, when public opinion um, is more tuned to climate change. And also, you know, firms and interest groups um, uh, with economic stakes are going to be motivated as well to do something, um, or pressure governments to do something to prevent further economic damages as well. So that was kind of the reason why um, we might see these kinds of indirect effects. And then obviously we didn't find the relationship. So what are the potential kind of sources of leakage in that path uh, from public opinion or economic damage to policy change? Yeah. I mean, if you think about the story there, a lot of things kind of need to go right to connect the dots between, you know, extreme weather events and climate policy. And so there could be all kinds of ways that this causal path breaks down. Maybe extreme weather events aren't enough of a focusing event or trigger to actually get this kind of mobilization. Maybe there's an effect on public opinion, but it's too hard to sustain any kind of mobilization around extreme weather events for long enough to actually affect policy. Or you could see counter-mobilization. You could see you know, anti-climate action groups kind of weaponizing extreme weather events um, to ramp up their efforts to lobby politicians to suppress climate action. Um, so there's different kinds of things that need to happen along the, along the way, things that need to go right um, to connect the dots between extreme weather events and climate policy. And there's lots of places along the way that those things can break down. So you studied this um, across uh, the world and across levels of government, um, and I know there wasn't an overall effect and you gave it the best chance you, you could, but was there any evidence that, um, you know, it might matter in some sometimes uh, or um, that we just may not have enough evidence in some places to, to know whether it would matter? So the way I thought about this in the paper was to look for heterogeneous effects. So if we think that one of the main mechanisms through which extreme weather events can lead to climate policy is through these things like mobilization, civil society mobilization, then maybe the effect would be stronger or present in democracies where it's easier to organize. There's freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, those kinds of things. Um, and the effect would be null in autocracies where it's more difficult to mobilize. 
but I didn't find any evidence that you had these kinds of differences across contexts. I also looked at this um, between rich and poor countries. Maybe there's a reason why rich countries already have you know, some public policy process in place that they can kind of ratchet up or build on um, to perform climate policy following extreme weather events, but maybe poor countries, developing countries are further behind. It would be a much larger change um, to get those, that infrastructure in place. Uh, but again, we didn't find any evidence that there's differences between uh, rich and poor countries in the effects. And what about the potential outcomes? What kinds of policies are we talking about here? And are there any categories where maybe, you know, we, we haven't assessed the effects on maybe more symbolic policies or ones that um, are, are, you know, maybe more tied to adaptation? Yeah, there's no perfect measure of climate policy outcomes across countries. Um, there's no kind of like DW nominate score for countries on, on climate. Um, and so what I tried to do instead was to be holistic and gather a bunch of different climate policy outcomes and see if there's any you know, arena where you see this kind of effect. So one of the most obvious ones is to look at the number of laws passed that pertain to climate change. So that was kind of the first outcome I started with. Um, but I didn't find any kind of significant effect there. So I moved on to think about other indicators and quickly it became quite easy to just gather more and more of these uh, relevant climate policy variables. And I ended up with about 10 or 11 in the paper. So one of them is the effect of carbon price in a country, which is a measure of um, how high is a country's carbon tax, like, you know, dollars per ton, and then what percentage of that country's carbon emissions were actually priced by that policy. So if you have a very high carbon price, but it only applies to, say, the steel sector, your effective carbon price is kind of watered down. Um, and so I looked at that as a measure as well and didn't find any evidence that countries are kind of ratcheting up their carbon prices following these extreme weather events. Um, and I looked at a few other outcomes in international politics about ratifying climate treaties and providing climate finance. But again, the same story. Despite this, we have seen some climate policy uh, advances um, and we are seeing uh, lots of countries and places um, enact some, some policies and, and there does seem to be an increase uh, over time. So if not actual climate impacts, uh, what are the things that they are responding to? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of the million dollar question, right? If we knew the answer to what drives climate policy, everything else would be kind of down to change from that. Um, I think, you know, at one level, the answer is, is kind of obvious, right? Like the answer is that when pro-climate groups in society are stronger than anti-climate groups in society, you get climate policy passed. Um, that kind of pushes the question further back and says, well, what do you need to do to strengthen the hand of pro-climate action groups, right? Um, so I think one thing that I'm quite optimistic about are the role of like protests, right? So think of climate protests around the world in the past five or six years. It's been a huge mobilization, especially of youth around climate action. And, you know, there's kind of a demonstration effect of protests that it kind of like extreme weather, right? It raises the salience of the issue in society. It also has a kind of a nice second order effect about um, signaling to other people how many people actually care about climate change, right? If you think that, if you think that you care about climate change, but no one else does, right? But then you see tons of people out in the street protesting about climate change, you then see that you have more kind of compatriots, right? So it's kind of a second order effect there of climate protests. They're also kind of fun to go to. I don't know how much you get to protests, Matt, but it's kind of a nice day out, right? Um, I also think that Things like lawsuits could be interesting here. So, you know, lawsuits, when you can have a group that sues companies or sues the government um, and, and wins, right, then you can have kind of a court-mandated um, increase in climate policy. So that's what's happening right now in Germany. And I think in the Netherlands, where court rulings have found that those governments' climate policies are not sufficient to meet the goals that they've actually set for themselves in the Paris Agreement. So they're kind of throwing policy back to, to legislatures to set stronger policy. So that's another arena kind of like moving outside of, you know, the formal political process through protests or doing so through the courts, right? It could be other kinds of forums or other kinds of venues where the deck is less stacked against um, pro-climate action groups 
compared to some legislatures. So uh, we're talking after uh, a very hot uh, July uh, in in North America and uh, to some extent globally, and there have been um, the classic pattern of stories that you talked about um, attributing uh, heat waves uh, to, to climate change and asking whether is it enough now, kind of talking about the mechanisms that we have done. So it seems like um, your findings might suggest that that's, that's a mistake, that climate activists, scientists, and the media should not be um, you know, making a huge deal out of, you know, a particular heat wave um, that people are experiencing, given that uh, we don't know whether that will have any downstream effects. Is that right? I'm a bit torn on this too, because it seems like an implication of the finding is that it's a waste of time to attribute extreme weather events to climate change because they don't have this tangible effect on policy. Um, but I'm still a bit hesitant to lean too far into that. I think you know, to the extent that what really needs to happen is, you know, greater organization, collective action, mobilization amongst pro-climate groups, then maybe these messaging or messaging around extreme weather events, connecting it to climate change can help solidify some of that coalition. Um, I'd like to see more research kind of looking at that specifically, like, do you get more kind of campaign donations or contributions to um, civil society groups that work on climate following these kinds of disasters? Um, but I think that there's probably no harm at this point in, you know, connecting extreme weather events to climate change and kind of reminding people like, you know, this is, um, you know, foreshadowing what future climate change will be. Right? These are the kind of the smaller local impacts of, you know, the future um, climate crisis. There is a study actually met um, by Zuid High and Rebecca Perlman looking at um whether um, when politicians attribute wildfires to climate change, how does that affect um, citizens' perceptions of their competence or knowledge of the issue? And this is a study um, recently done in California, and they find that when politicians in their kind of survey experiment um, mention climate change or attribute wildfires to climate change, that Republican respondents now rate those politicians as less credible, less competent, less sympathetic, um, but that it doesn't change the opinions that independents or Democrats have towards those politicians. So there, I guess you could see some of this backlash. That would be, I guess, with politicians, right, with elected leaders um, connecting the dots between extreme weather events and climate change. So I also spoke uh, with uh, Peter Howe for this episode, and he studies uh, the effects of uh, temperature shocks on public opinion. Um, and as we've discussed, um, there are some studies that find effects, but overall the effects are relatively short term um, and relatively limited um, and seem to be more about the temperature changes than the, than the other extreme weather events. Um, I guess, how much is that public opinion pathway kind of what you had in mind uh, in this study? And how do you think that the findings fit together? Yeah, I think that this is like an interesting, you know, example of how a set of research findings evolves over time, right? You have some initial studies that show quite large effects. I think the first study that I saw in this, I think it was like a one degree Celsius temperature shock gives like a one-sixth standard deviation change in public opinion or public concern about climate change, which I think is like a pretty, you know, generous effect, big effect. It's not huge, but it's not nothing, right? Um, and then, of course, like as the literature develops, you have more people who are all working on the same kind of question. You have a broader range of findings that are eventually published. And then in these meta-analyses, you find that like, you know, the first findings in a, in a literature are often kind of the, the biggest or the flashiest findings. And that the average finding is you know, much closer to, to zero, not necessarily zero, not to say that any of these studies themselves are wrong or something that the, the research itself is problematic, but just that, you know, when consumers of research, you know, you look for papers, the papers that have the most flashy findings are the most exciting ones. You see those ones first. And then over time, as you learn more about a topic, um, you see a broader range of, of findings. Right. So when I was writing this paper, starting in 2019, 2020, you know, the first published results here were these kind of like large effects. Um, and that kind of got me thinking and motivated to keep working on this question. And then over time, as the paper progresses, you see more and more papers come out that show, you know, short-lived effects or that depend on context or other kinds of respondent characteristics. And we should think that, you know, overall, the effect of these weather shocks is, is smaller than we might have initially thought. 
It's kind of similar to um, your findings about uh, changes in in policies uh, globally. He he still finds that you know public opinion in terms of uh, awareness of climate change and attribution is still increasing over time. Um, it, it's not increasing everywhere the same. It's more increasing in, in liberal states than conservative states in the U.S., for example. But it does raise for me the possibility that um, maybe we're kind of expecting things to be local, but really there's just a time series here where we all are all experiencing more potential effects of climate change and overall levels of engagement increase. Um, any chance that there's a mechanism that, that is kind of less local, but still does involve people seeing uh, potential impacts. Yeah, if you think about how like we have national media markets, right, you would have extreme weather events in California and people in Arizona, you know, read the same newspapers, same news websites. They're all kind of, in a sense, like exposed to heightened media coverage around climate. And I assume that that would affect, you know, would generalize as you move further from the actual you know, location of an extreme weather event. So if we're all kind of reading the same news, um, you know, in the same media market, then it doesn't really, um, you might think there's an additional effect of being you know, in the location, but that everyone is in a sense experiencing the same kind of weather shock by virtue of all being exposed to the same information about it. So one of the things that uh, Howe was, I guess, holding out uh, hope for is that um, there just weren't um, uh, big, big enough effects or big enough um, climate impacts uh, yet um, to to see the kinds of effects that he eventually expects. So it's a sort of a, maybe, maybe you ain't seen nothing yet, or maybe, you know, the, the types of impacts that we're seeing while they, they look large to, to some people still won't approach the kinds of effects that, that people might eventually experience from climate change. So what, what do you think about that? Is there any, any, any sign in your data that either the very largest uh, uh, impacts had some uh, effect or how should we think about uh, studying something with past data um, at a time when the climate impacts might be increasing? Yeah, I think there are kind of two answers here. One is, you know, this claim that in the future the effects will be larger and then we will see the, the effect is kind of like inherently unfalsifiable, right? It's like there's always somewhere in the future a larger weather shock, a larger temperature shock that will finally, you know, crack um, the process wide open. Um, and I think we should be thinking more about, you know, the underlying political dynamics here rather than there's going to be some kind of deus machina in the future that's going to, you know, from heaven to send this temperature shock large enough to fix our politics. Um, at the same time, though, in the past data, there are, you know, very large weather shocks. We have certainly very large um, hurricanes and other kinds of natural disasters. And then there are years, um, you know, within countries where you have two degree even three degree um, temperature anomalies. And you know, those, those are huge, huge weather anomalies. So you know, if we think that in the future, larger climate impacts will unlock greater climate action, we've actually already seen in the past a few examples of relatively large shocks that have not done so. So I'm skeptical of this kind of line of reasoning. It's very tempting, right, to think that you know, in the future, this, will, this problem will solve itself. Um, but I think that we don't see any real evidence in the past, and it's a kind of a dangerous um, proposition to think that this problem will be fixed in the future by, you know, the collapse of the West Antarctic ice shelf or something. So is uh, we talked about how you know maybe there's there's no harm uh, to highlighting uh, the connection um, between uh, extreme weather and climate change, even if it doesn't have an effect on policy change. Um, but of course, these are you know uncertain relationships, um, and it could be that next July will be unseasonably cool, um, or that um, you know that there'll be a, a decline in some category of extreme weather uh, events. Um, in a politically important place, um, and obviously there would be an infrastructure to kind of make the same, <laughs> make the same kind of argument in in reverse um, if if that were a case. So does that give any pause about um, it, making these connections, um, or does it say that well, if if it's not much impact one way, then you know it's unlikely that that that, that would seriously slow down uh, climate action if we did just happen to have an inopportune reversal. Uh, of one of these uh, potential effects. 
we need to find ways to articulate climate action as more than just about the weather, because the weather is changeable. Um, you have hot years and you have dry years, um, but then you have wet years and you have cooler years. Um, of course, the overall trends and projections are quite negative, but you do have you know, annual and seasonal changes in weather. So I think trying to find ways to articulate the urgency of climate action around things that are perhaps more proximate in people's lives, like air pollution or cost of energy, um, could be you know, ways to kind of skirt around some of these concerns about the changeability of, of weather year on year. So I, I guess given um, that you went through the exercise of, of predicting climate uh, policy um, and you were, you, were trying to, you were trying to look for the effect of uh, actual uh, climate events, um, but in the process you investigated some other things that might predict climate um, policy. So I guess what is the state of that kind of generic research area and what, you know, even in your controls, do you think people should know about what really drives climate policy? Yeah, I mean, there's some research, kind of early research about endowments, like so countries that have larger supplies of you know, renewable resources um, tend to have stronger climate policies. So places like Norway that have huge reserves of hydro tend to have stronger climate policy. Of course, if you have you know, large reserves of fossil fuels, that's kind of the opposite direction. Again, Norway as a major uh, oil and gas exporter. So you know, endowments play a large role. Um, I'm excited to you know, learn more about the effects of mobilization. So in a paper I'm working on with some co-authors, actually it's just accepted at the British Journal of Political Science, we looked at the effect of climate protests on political speech. So this is in the UK. We have all these data on hundreds of um, Fridays for Future protests in the 2017-2019 parliament. And then we match these in time and place to their legislators, their MPs. And so we look at... Um, how MPs are speaking about climate change on Twitter and speaking about climate change in the House of Commons following local protests in their constituencies. And we see that um, British politicians in this period are more likely to discuss climate change on Twitter after these youth protests in their constituencies. And we see at the same time like an overall change in the, the way that MPs talk about climate change during this time period. So they're getting more, more language of urgency, more language of emergency, and less kind of technical language around decarbonization in in their um, speech on climate change. So kind of excited to think more about ways that political mobilization, things like protests, can affect the the or like the the sense of urgency that politicians face to act on this problem. And what about um, policy uh, it, itself? Um, I, I think we've had uh, like Barry Rabe on before, who's who's talked about all the different places that, that carbon pricing schemes have, have failed or uh, that we've seen backtrack on. Um, but we also had uh, Leah Stokes on who talked about um, some ways that kind of early small climate policies tended to develop future climate policies. So what should we think about um, that is, you know, when countries act, is that does that mean that maybe more policy might be on the way as people um, experience the policy? Or does that mean that you know, they experience economic impacts or some some uh, loser um, mobilizes um, and thus, you know, climate action doesn't doesn't bring more climate action. Yeah, I mean, you can see kind of both sides of that argument, right? I think um, the kind of gradualism or incrementalism of policy has long been a goal um, or, a, you know, mode of doing climate policy. I think there's some real strengths to it of having a relatively low carbon price that gets stronger over time or... Um, you know, maybe relatively high subsidies that phase out over time is kind of a similar way to think about how those policies could work. Um, one thing that I think isn't discussed so much in the research, but is an interesting idea is, you know, finding ways to insulate or buy out groups that are, you know, very recalcitrant in the process, right? So if you, um, you know, are a utility company that has huge investments in coal-fired power plants or gas-fired power plants, you know, you have an income stream that, you know, is kind of locked in for the next 10, 20, 30 years, and you stand to lose quite a bit from climate action, so you're going to lobby quite hard against it. And, you know, thinking creatively about how to use finance to buy out those agreements um, could be an interesting way to think about, you know, insulating some of the, the losers from climate policy while still getting the desired air pollution um, and climate benefits from shutting down this fossil fuel infrastructure as early as possible. So I'd be curious to see more 
um, you know, creative thinking and policy designs that could um, unlock climate action by maybe buying out some of these um, polluters. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, I recommend these episodes next, all linked on our website. Polarized opinion on climate change and messages that move conservatives. When and where can climate policy succeed? When public opinion goes to the ballot box. How donor opinion distorts American democracy. And policymakers follow informed expertise. Thanks to Peter Howe and Sam Rowan for joining me. Please check out a meta-analysis of the relationship between climate change experience and climate change perception and extreme weather and climate policy, and then listen in next time.